0: Of the iron we ingest, we only absorb a very small percentage of it, and the percentage that we absorb is higher if we're getting the iron from meat.
1: Welcome to the Runners Connect Run to the
0: Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Tina Muir.
1: Hello, this is Tina Muir. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in today. I really appreciate you giving your time to listen to me, talk to my guests today, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Speaking of guests, did you listen to last week's podcast episode yet with Fernando Cabada? It was seriously one of the most inspirational talks I've ever heard, and you are going to love it. So if you haven't listened to it yet, make sure after you listen to this one, you check it out, runnersconnect.net forward slash rc75. So, as runners, we want to be the best we can be, and we know how important nutrition is to running our best. Yet, we often hear about how runners do not get enough of certain vitamins and minerals. Iron is obviously one of the most common ones. I thought I'd bring on an expert, not just someone who has read the studies but who's completed the studies and found some really interesting results. If you ever wondered if you needed iron or calcium or even any other supplement, this is just what you are looking for. Trust me, I've spent hours Googling this stuff and this episode has so much more information packed in and it truly is from an expert. So my guest today is Pam Hinton. She is the Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies, along with being in the Department of Nutrition and Exercise Physiology at the University of Missouri, which is where she's done a lot of her studies that you're going to hear about today. She's done presentations on bone density, dietary recommendations for sports performance, nutrition, and exercise physiology. Today, we're going to talk about when you need to take iron supplements, and just how much to consume based on your ferritin levels. This is really interesting because I've had so many conflicting results and this is actually just what I needed. You're going to learn about how resistance training not only helps with preventing osteoporosis, but it can actually strengthen your bones and reverse bone loss. And that doesn't matter what age you are. They found this with masters athletes, which was really interesting. And how contrary to popular belief, many runners do not actually get enough calories, especially carbs and protein, and they actually may be putting their long-term health at risk. Kind of interesting, huh? Are you ready to meet Pam? Let's do it. Welcome to the Run to the Top podcast, Pam. Thank you. I'm excited to have you on and I think this is going to be a really insightful episode here. I'm sure this is a an episode that a lot of people have been waiting for for me to actually cover something like this um so let's begin with kind of your story like do you run yourself or like what inspired your interest in like endurance athletes and and runners okay um I am an endurance athlete I started running
0: when I was in high school and I ran tracking cross country in high school mm-hmm. and Actually, my interest in nutrition and running started back then. I remember having a a lab tech class where we did a unit looking at blood and iron status. We actually measured our own hemoglobin and hematocrit, and even at that time, I was making the associations between iron and diet and and my own performance. So my interest started way back then, and I ran uh, cross-country and track in college also at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, I continued to run after that. I did a few marathons, and then I was um, hit by a car actually and broke my leg so oh, I had wow. to switch boards and I, yeah, I took up cycling um, and I, I competed in, in road cycling for a while but uh, kind of given up the competing and just ride my bike for fitness now.
1: Okay. (laughs) Well, quite a story there. (laughs) I'm not surprised uh, you kind of changed your mind and that's great that you've kind of kept up with it. So let's kind of dive right into uh, the study that you recently covered um, about iron. Um, You put about uh, endurance athletes who are at risk of low iron have these potential negative consequences. So could you kind of just give us a bit of feedback about just what the study involved, um, just a bit about it for our listeners who probably haven't seen it yet.
0: Okay, so I think the most recent uh, paper that you're referring to was a review article where I tried to summarize the current state of the knowledge about how iron status affects really the performance and health of endurance athletes. So it was really a summary of all the work that's been um, done up to this point. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I can sort of summarize that for you if you, if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So we've known for decades that if you're anemic, like severely iron deficient to the point where your, um, red blood cell number is reduced and your hemoglobin and hematocrit are reduced, you're going to suffer um, decreases in performance because you don't have the ability to carry oxygen from your lungs to your muscles. So that's Mm -hmm. a severe limitation on um, endurance athletes in particular. What we haven't known for as long is if you're mildly iron deficient, so you have normal hemoglobin and normal red blood cell number, normal hematocrit, but other functional forms of iron in your body, some of the enzymes in your skeletal muscle and other proteins in your skeletal muscle that, that you need for exercise, especially endurance exercise, if those things are decreased, if that affects your performance. Mm-hmm. And um, the work we've done in the past uh, 10 or 15 years or so, me you and know, others, have has shown that you don't have to be severely iron deficient. You don't have to be anemic to see a decrease in performance. So when those other forms of iron are low, your ability to, your endurance capacity is reduced. So you, can, um, you can't you can exercise as efficiently when you're at like a, a sub-maximal workload. So, you know, most of us, when we run or ride our bikes or whatever. We're not at our maximal effort. We're out there you know for a period of time at a, a, a pace we can sustain so if you're mildly iron deficient or iron deficient without anemia that um, that that sort of performance can be negatively affected
1: and when you say low like what kind of numbers or what kind of things do people kind of need to look out for when when they're considering whether they're low or normal or high
0: Okay, so it's a little bit tricky to look at sort of that that iron deficiency without anemia. Anemia is easy to assess. There, and every time you have blood drawn at the doctor, they're going to give you these measures. So, hemoglobin concentration and hemoglobin is the iron-containing protein that it's in your red blood cells that carries the oxygen. You'll get hematocrit, which is the percentage of your blood that's red blood cells. And so those numbers we always get. And, of course, you want those to be normal, and, and they vary from men to women. But you want your your hematocrit to be about 37 or so or higher if you're female. And then hemoglobin should be 12 or higher or 120, depending on what units you're using. What's more difficult to assess, like I said, is whether these other forms of iron are low or normal and the best indicator that we have that's used clinically on a regular basis is called ferritin or Mm -hmm. serum ferritin and it's a protein that binds iron when iron is stored in the liver and a little bit of that protein gets out of your liver and into your circulation so we can use it as an estimate of what your iron stores are and if your iron stores are low You've, you've used up all the iron that you have stored to put it into these functional forms of iron, um, then your serum ferritin will be low. And there is some variation what people consider a low ferritin. So probably the highest cutoff that you'd see is 35 and other people say 10 or 12, 20. But, but somewhere between 20 and 30 is what I would aim for for a serum ferritin value.
1: So you you want it to be between that value, or, or you want you that want to it be a minimum of that?
0: A minimum, right? So once it gets below thirty-five or twenty, then you could consider that all your iron stores have been used up, and if you don't do something to increase your iron intake, you're you're on the way to becoming anemic.
1: Okay, and so what would a you know what would a comfortable or a good number be at? Like, I mean, I've I have some elite friends who say, you know, they don't like theirs to drop below 100 for their ferritin levels or like, is there a comfortable level that you would recommend most runners kind of like aim for if that's the right kind of way of phrasing it?
0: Uh, yeah, I under- I understand what you're asking. People want sort of a, a cushion there to mm-hmm. make sure that they have enough. What What's difficult, especially for women, is to get it to above the minimum because we lose more iron through menstrual blood losses and we tend not to eat as much. So our iron intake tends to be lower. So it's just a harder thing for women. So most athletes should be feeling okay if their ferritin is is 35 or higher. You can go the other extreme and take too much supplemental iron and get... Iron toxicity, which is is not good, so it's not a case of oh, the higher your ferritin is, the better off you are. You you just want it above that that minimum to ensure that you're not becoming iron deficient with anemia.
1: So could it be? you know, one person might get that toxicity when their uh, ferritin is, say, 60, and another person might not get it till, like, 90. So, you know, say you are, I think last time I was tested, mine was, like, 41. Like, maybe Mm -hmm. that's a comfortable level for me, but there may be another runner who, you know, runs the same miles and everything, kind of the same as me, but they theirs is comfortable at like 60. Is that kind of what you're saying, that each person is different? As long as it's above that level, then you're kind of okay?
0: Yes. So each person is different. Some people will absorb iron better than others, and so they'll tend to have higher serum ferritins. So there, there's a very wide range of what we would consider a normal ferritin. It's from whatever you're going to call the minimum, say 35 to 300 so wow. you can get pretty f- high ferritins before you would be considered to have iron overload. But as far as where a person sort of naturally stays, that will vary from person to person. And it depends on their genetics and their usual diet, you know, all sorts of things that are unique to each person.
1: So if, if someone is above 35, then you're just you, like, as long as you maintain it and make sure it doesn't drop, you're kind of okay to sit as you are? yes okay yes okay and then what about if someone is low like someone listening right now they have had a blood test and theirs is you know let's say 17 you know what what's the best way to kind of build up that iron you know firstly quickly and then like i guess safely or in a more uh conservative way
0: right so what you would recommend to a person somewhat depends on what they're already doing so not knowing anything about a person who has low ferritin, I would first say, well, what what is your diet like? Um, So by far the best source of iron in our diets is red meat. And that's because the iron in the meat is part of a protein, um, a heme molecule that makes it much better absorbed than iron that's in plants or in, in supplements. So of the iron we ingest, we only absorb a very small percentage of it. Um, and the percentage that we absorb is higher if we're getting iron from meat. Mm-hmm. And red meat just happens to have more iron than, than white meat.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know? So that would be my first recommendation. What, what is your diet like? And, you know, some people they're vegetarians or they have other dietary restrictions, they don't want to increase their intake of of red meat, then you would look at probably having to take an oral iron supplement. They come in all different iron salts. So there's ferrous sulfate, ferrous fumarate, ferrous gluconate. And for the most part, it doesn't really matter which one of those you take. Some people are somewhat sensitive to the sulfate. They have sort of an allergic reaction to that. So you might want to try the the fumarate or the the gluconate. And to increase the amount of iron that's absorbed from that supplement, you want to take it with something that's somewhat acidic like orange juice. Um, That helps the iron be more soluble and, and you will absorb of it, You're not going to absorb very much of it, but you will absorb more of it if you, you take that iron supplement with um, something that's acidic. And, you know, if someone's had their ferritin tested, you sort of hope they're under the care of a doctor who's going to monitor how well they respond to an iron supplement. And people really shouldn't start taking iron either unless they know that they need it because of the danger of, of iron overload. So you want to, you know, either make the change in your diet or start taking the supplement and then have some sort of follow-up in in four to six weeks to make sure that your ferritin is going in the direction that you want it to, that it's increasing.
1: Okay. And how often, you said that red meat is probably the best way to, um, you know, take it in. Like how... You know, if you just said like a regular um, what they the recommended uh, serving size for a portion of red meat like how often would you say um, most people you know saying they are normal need should be eating red meat is it once a week or is it once a week and then twice a week if you're trying to raise your levels or what are your thoughts on how often?
0: okay so the I the recommended iron intake for females is, 18 milligrams which is a lot if you consider there's about 6 milligrams of iron per thousand calories and of the typical western diet so that wow. means you have to eat 3,000 calories to get enough iron which a lot of endurance athletes, you know, we have high energy needs but, but that's that uh, quite a bit <laughs> so um, a typically so a serving size of lean beef say is 4 ounces there's maybe four milligrams of iron in that.
1: Okay.
0: Um, so part of it is, you know, paying attention to the serving size. So it, that really isn't a lot of meat to eat. It's not like you're going and eating a big steak. Right. So Mm -hmm. I would suggest to eat it more like three times a week, but it doesn't have to be a huge portion, I guess is is the point I'm I'm trying to make. Okay. Uh,
1: Okay, good. And, um, and then just uh, before we go on, uh, I just wanted to ask one other question, which uh, what is it about running that breaks down the iron? Or what is, why is it so important to endurance sports rather than, you know, um, someone who's a sprinter or something that isn't, you know, as long distance? What is it about long distance uh, exercise that makes it kind of us uh, need the iron intake?
0: Okay. So there's, there's a, a couple things. One is, um, endurance athletes are more likely to notice the decrease in performance that would be associated with, with the iron deficiency than a sprint athlete or like a power athlete. So it could be that, that there, there also have increased iron losses like endurance athletes do, but it's not as um, critical to their performance because they don't have to sustain Mm -hmm. exercise for long periods of time. It's just maximal anaerobic exercise that isn't dependent on iron. Um, So, there are several theories about why athletes are at, at increased risk for iron deficiency. So, one is certain groups of athletes just don't consume as much iron. Um, they purposefully restrict their energy intake or don't eat a lot of meat, like we were just talking about, because they get high in fat. Um, so there's that end of it. And then there's also that athletes have greater iron losses. And there's several explanations for how that could be. One is that because of the exercise, the time it takes food to pass through your gastrointestinal tract is... Is shorter, it's faster, and so you lose more iron through your gastrointestinal tract. It's just not as much as absorbed. Another explanation is that we have um, greater sweat losses, so there isn't very much iron in in sweat, but. If you are a type of athlete, an endurance athlete, who does a high volume of training or really long competitions, then your sweat volume will be higher, so you may have increased iron losses um, through your sweat. The other is that a lot of the iron in our body is in our red blood cells, and the, the pounding of running... You know, it, to those little blood vessels in the bottoms of our feet can damage the red blood cells that are passing through there. So there's a shorter half-life of the red blood cells. Oh, okay. So we, we lose, it's called foot strike hemolysis. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the impact damages those red blood cells. And when they're damaged, we um, lose some of the iron that way. There may be imperceptible um, blood losses or iron losses through the kidney, the urinary tract. So it's not entirely clear which one of these mechanisms is the most important, mm-hmm. but it's probably sort of the cumulative effect of, of all of them, that we have increased losses and then maybe reduced intake, and that makes endurance athletes more vulnerable to, to iron deficiency. And they've shown, too, you know, like um, gymnasts or... Um, basketball players, so it's it's not unique to endurance athletes, but those other those two groups also have high impact, right? The mm-hmm. impact in gymnastics and in basketball, so it tends to sort of be a problem for most athletes, especially female athletes.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you Mm -hmm. for clearing that up for me. And then one other question just for, um, about iron before we move on. Um, would you, other than recommending regular blood work, what other signs should people kind of watch out for if, you know, low iron may be something that's bothering their performance? Are there any other signs other than, you know, feeling more fatigued or performance decreases?
0: Well, so that will be the most perceptible sign that somebody would have. And unfortunately, you're not gonna know that, that for sure until you're pretty far down the path to iron deficiency, maybe even anemic. So if somebody's a high level endurance athlete, I would suggest if possible, they have their ferritin monitored on a regular basis so they can they can know what their iron stores are depleted before they've been depleted and then you start to become anemic because once you're anemic, it just it takes a while to get that turned around, and you're going to have a period of time where you're really fatigued and, mm-hmm. and not feeling yourself, and, and then you have all sorts of other <laughs> problems, right? So um, th- that's what I would recommend. I mean, some healthcare providers are, are more um, on board with, with that idea than, mm-hmm. than others, but that's, that would be my recommendation.
1: Okay, great. All right, thank you very much. And then are there any other important minerals or supplements that you would recommend for endurance um, athletes?
0: Well, one that tends to sort of go along with with iron that we tend also to not eat enough of would be zinc. Both zinc and iron are found in in meat. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't eat meat, then you're not getting the iron, but you're also not getting the, the zinc. And zinc is important for so many functions throughout the body. So it um, is needed for protein synthesis, hormone synthesis, normal immune function, and a lot of us are just consuming marginal intakes. So that's another one I would pay attention to. And the best way to increase your zinc intake would be also to to regularly consume, again, small portions of, of meat. It doesn't have to, doesn't have to completely switch your diet um and if you decide you want to take a zinc supplement you want to not take it when you take an iron supplement because those two minerals interfere with their absorption of the other one so you'd want to separate them in time so maybe take one in the morning and one in the evening
1: okay and you don't need to take anything with that like i've heard about um taking calcium magnesium and zinc together
0: Yes, and it, it it's kind of odd how these minerals get combined into supplements. <laughs> so calcium and magnesium are are very similar chemically, so they also interfere with each other's absorption. Oh. So it's really best to I mean <laughs> you're somewhat limited by by you know time in the day what's available <laughs> and, and how many different supplements you want to buy. But um it's really better to because you're taking such a huge amount when you take a supplement, right? Mm-hmm. Much more than you would get from eating
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, a meal. So it it really is better to to separate them if you if you can. Mm-hmm.
1: But. Yeah.
0: Because okay. logistically,
1: you have, to, yeah, yeah. you have to plan
0: for it, right? Think about you
1: what you're doing. Have a uh, alarm go off every hour to say a different <laughs> <Right>. subject. <until> it... <laughs> I guess that could be one option. So let's kind of move on to uh, your work on bone density. So could you kind okay. of summarize some of your findings or some of the most interesting things that you'd like to share based on what you found?
0: Sure. So um, we, uh, several years ago,
1: uh,
0: did a a cross-sectional study where we were looking at the prevalence of low bone density or um, osteopenia in men who participated in different types of physical activity. So these were like recreational athletes. They weren't elite athletes. And we had one group who were runners, cyclists, and then the third group was strength trained athletes. And the cyclists, who cycling is a non-weight bearing activity, the cyclists were much more likely to have low bone density of the spine than the runners or the strength trained athletes. And the prevalence that we found was 62% of the, of the men that we tested. So that was pretty shocking because they were, you know, middle-aged men, very healthy from the outward appearance. Um, so we were really surprised that, that that many of them would have clinically significant low bone density mm-hmm. and that is what led to the next study which was, well, what can we do about this and you know, some of the people who were in the study, the men were saying, well, my gosh, I didn't think I'd have low bone density of the spine at age 40, um, what should I do and of course, everybody knows you should take calcium and vitamin D for your bone health. And then another recommendation is do weight bearing exercise. But that's a very vague recommendation. Mm-hmm. Weight bearing exercise could be walking, it could be running, it could be weightlifting, it could be plyometrics. So we don't. What what types of exercise does that mean? How often do you need to do it? How much do you need to do? So the next uh, study that we did was really to try and refine that exercise prescription. So we had two treatment groups. Um, one group of men did uh, weightlifting two times a week for a year and then the other treatment groups did jump training three times a week for a year and we looked at changes in the bone density of the whole body, hip and spine. And both the weight training and the jumping increased whole body bone density and spine bone density, and then the weightlifting also increased bone density of the hip. So we were really happy that we now have more uh, defined exercise prescription or training program that we can say we, you know, in this population of men at least, we've shown that this will will increase bone mass and we were especially encouraged because these men the average age was you know 42 or something like that they're at an age where we're not gaining a lot of bone anymore we've reached our peak bone density and we're starting to lose so the fact that we not only stopped the loss but showed an actual increase was was really um a positive finding and we're really
1: happy about that was that the uh study I, I came across one of yours that said um you know it was focusing on you know highlighting that it's not just women who suffer from osteoporosis and uh, i think it says 40 percent of nine million new fractures are men is that correct
0: yeah so um if you think about osteoporosis you know we had almost everybody pictures a little old lady mm-hmm. right we think of of postmenopausal osteoporosis and by far most cases of osteoporosis are in women, but it's a disease that it affects men and it affects men more severely than women. Mm -hmm. Um, The mortality after a hip fracture in men is much higher than it, it is in women and so many men they're not diagnosed. So they have low bone density. It goes undiagnosed, which means it goes untreated for a long time. So that mm-hmm. when we finally recognize they have a problem, they're much worse off than, than a woman would be. So um, that's kind of what, what motivated us to, to start looking at bone health in men. It's just that they're a
1: somewhat ignored population yeah. when it comes
0: to, to looking at it osteoporosis and long-term bone health.
1: Yeah, and then uh, just off that um mm-hmm. like how does resistance training or strength training like how does that work with strengthening bones i mean just trying to logically think to myself about what makes that you know strengthen your bones essentially
0: okay so we you know have this idea of bone as being just like hard inert framework that the rest of our body is built on mm-hmm. but Bone is very adaptive, and the bone can sense changes in nutrient status and hormonal uh, levels, and it can change, it can sense changes in, in mechanical loading or the stress that's put on bone. So, the resistance training increases the bone strength because of the force of the muscle contractions on the bone. So, if you just think of a simple example of the, the bone in your upper arm until so you have your, your biceps and your triceps attached to that, that bone. When you contract your arm muscles, say, doing bicep curls, the, when the bicep contracts, it, it's pulling on the bone. So you have mm-hmm. this muscle contraction forces on the bone, and that strengthens the bone. Mm-hmm. And then the other type of force the bone experiences when you exercise is an impact force. So, every time your foot hits the ground, whether you're running or or jumping, there's this, you know, this load that the skeleton experiences that strengthens it. And it's very site-specific. So, just like with weightlifting to increase your muscles, you know, your arms aren't going to get stronger if you're only doing squats or lunges. Mm -hmm. So... Whatever part of the skeleton you want to strengthen, that's the part that needs to be stressed.
1: Is running enough of an activity that it kind of like sends a shockwave through the whole body as it is so high impact? Or Yes. So runners
0: tend to have higher bone density of the lower extremities. And depending on their, you know, sort of energy balance and hormones, status. They may also, you know, they may have high bone density of their spine, also. Mm-hmm. But uh, for sure, their their legs and hips will have will have um high, They'll have higher bone density compared to the cyclists, for example, who don't who do exercise, but they don't have that impact type loading on their on their skeleton.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, how often, when you talk about resistance training uh, based on your findings, how often? Uh, would you recommend people do this resistance training?
0: So in our study, we had the subjects lift weights twice a week. There needs to be, as far as the muscle recovering from the, the weightlifting, probably 48 hours. So that was why we went twice a week, so that we'd be sure the participants had adequate recovery. Mm-hmm. Once a week might be enough and for sure would be better than than nothing. But probably twice a week would be ideal
1: okay and you're talking like heavy heavy weight training kind of more like uh you know what what is stereotypes is like traditional gym work rather than just like dumbbells and like body weight exercises
0: right so in the in the weight training group we had the the program was a periodized program so that meant the whole year was divided into six week sections and the first two weeks were lightweight and medium weight, then heavyweight, and those were all based on percentages of the subjects' maximum lifts. And so they'd have their, they would repeat their um, their strength test. So one repetition maximums after the sixth week. So we would continually increase the weight they were lifting. So it was a conventional weightlifting program in the sense that it was periodized and we were increasing the intensity, but the intensity wasn't designed to cause huge gains in muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And in fact, our subjects maybe on average gained two pounds of lean body mass. So they didn't become their, your stereotypic huge bodybuilder <laughs> <laughs> type. Right. Um, it was more just for strength, right? So the light. The light weeks, they would do 10 to 12 repetitions, the medium weeks, six to eight, and then four to six, the heavy weeks. So um, there was some intensity there, so they would continue to gain strength, but we didn't design it to cause huge increases in in muscle mass. So I guess what I'm saying is you you don't need to spend a lot of time in the gym or do really intense weightlifting or think you have to gain a lot of muscle mass to have a benefit
1: on your bones okay okay yeah that clears that up nicely and then one other thing just before we move on from bones talked about calcium a little bit so is that true um what 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 i've heard of you only build your calcium until like you can only build your bones to be stronger until age 30 or is what you kind of found kind of um go against that
0: yeah so so typically we sometimes even call call osteoporosis a pediatric disease because of what you just said we we build bone until you know through childhood and adolescence when our skeleton is rapidly growing and then we get to age 30 or so we stop adding bone and then wherever we are that's what we're left with and as we age we lose bone and if we haven't achieved our very high peak bone mass by age 30, then we're kind of stuck, right? Mm-hmm. We're starting from a lower maximum, and as we lose bone, we end up with osteoporosis. So, there is this window of opportunity during growth where it's really important to to maximize bone density, mm-hmm. but that we've, we've shown in several studies, that doesn't mean that calcium intake or physical activity after age 30 has no effect. So... For sure, um, in our intervention study, we showed that, that men in their 40s could actually increase their bone mass just through getting enough calcium and vitamin D and doing bone-specific exercise. Um, but but you need both components, right? You need the exercise, the right type of exercise, and you need the, the calcium, Okay, so you can't substitute to one for the
1: other okay and best sources of calcium i mean obviously we know about milk but dairy's kind of got a bad reputation recently uh i know broccoli and kale are there any other sources that you would recommend
0: so um it's so the thing about the the broccoli and the kale and the the plant-based sources of calcium is that there's naturally occurring compounds in the plants that bind to calcium and other minerals really tightly mm-hmm. and if those compounds are they're called oxalates if they're bound to the calcium you can't absorb it so yeah there's a lot of calcium in the broccoli and the kale but you, you don't absorb as much of it as you would if you're getting the calcium from another source oh. like mm-hmm. um, the, the dairy milk um and then of course all other types of of milk that are um Commercially available, like soy milk, they they all have calcium added, right? So it, that is another um, source that most um, that would be available to most most people if they don't want to have um, dairy milk. Um, and then there's calcium supplements, of course, mm-hmm. and probably the the most cost effective type of calcium supplement would be something like. Uh, like an antacid that's just calcium carbonate Mm -hmm. so again a salt of calcium but that's going to be cheaper than buying a calcium supplement that's marketed towards preventing osteoporosis so you can buy other you can get it in all kinds of forms right like there's two like gel capsules and those are just
1: as effective yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. And then one other thing I wanted to ask you about. One more study you did uh, was yeah. about male and female collegiate athletes, and you found uh-huh. that the majority were not consuming enough calories, carbs, or protein. So could you just kind of yes. like summarize what that was about, and you know what your interesting findings were from that?
0: Sure. So um, in this study, we were interested in the um, the nutrient intakes of of collegiate athletes, and then also their eating behaviors. So we, in our study, inc- recruited all of the collegiate athletes at the University of Missouri, so all, all different sports, and we um, gave them questionnaires to look at their eating behaviors and their their nutrient intakes. And <laughs> I guess one of the, the kind of surprising findings because you sort of... I have this stereotype of athletes at least endurance athletes Mm -hmm. being very conscientious about their diet Mm -hmm. um, and paying a lot of attention to how their diet might affect their performance, was that the, you know, I'm I'm making some generalizations, but for the most part, the athletes were, like you said, not getting enough carbohydrate and protein and were consuming too much fat. Um, So they were consuming fat at the expense of the the carbohydrates and and protein.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And, of course, that's going to have... Impacts on performance, no matter what type of, of athlete you are. The carbs you, you need, obviously, if you're an endurance athlete to uh, replenish your glycogen stores, and then everybody needs protein to repair and, and build muscle and other lean tissue. So that was probably the, the most surprising finding. And it was actually kind of neat because we, we presented these results to the athletic department, and they since done a lot to educate the, the athletes as far as nutrition and, and sort of coding oh. foods with what's high in fat and low in fat and and hired a nutritionist. So they've gone a long way. It was kind of neat to see that the
1: results <laughs> of the study you. actually yeah. motivated
0: some change. Oh, you
1: know? that's great. So uh, this is not just for, like, even though you did it on collegiate athletes, this is for all runners kind of to take note and listen to you, that you don't want to sacrifice your carbs and protein for extra
0: fat. Right. Or just not get enough carbs and protein. Right. So maybe your overall energy intake isn't what it should be. Mm-hmm. Um and so that that could mean that your carbohydrate intake and your, your protein intake are are not sufficient. And that will definitely impact your recovery. And if you're not recovering well, then you're you're uh, Won't we'll be able to train as well, and you're, you're going to see a, a decrease in performance, and get uh, become more susceptible to overtraining, and and all that.
1: And so, what do you say to runners out there listening who are you know they recognize what you're saying, and that's great, but they're thinking you know, well, I don't want to gain weight, and if I eat more calories, I'm going to gain more weight, and those extra carbs or protein are, are extra calories.
0: Yeah. So I I completely understand why, mm-hmm. why people <laughs> would think that, um, I think the first thing to do is to, and, and you, you know, depending on your, your nutrition knowledge, you may want to consult with somebody, but to take a, a look at your overall diet and, you know, maybe there are, um, so first, what is your overall energy intake? Is that adequate or not? And then, um, maybe there's room to decrease your fat intake so you could increase your calorie, your carbohydrate and protein intake without making a huge increase in your your overall energy intake so you wouldn't have to worry so much about the 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 weight gain i think so you can you know your body adapts very well to small changes in in energy intake so if you have a small increase in your um, calorie intake as carbohydrate and protein, that doesn't mean you're going to gain weight. Mm -hmm. So if your body is energy deprived, your resting metabolic rate has slowed down. Mm -hmm. And simply by giving your body the nutrients it needs, the carbohydrate it needs, your resting metabolic rate will go up and you will use those extra calories to maintain a normal Resting medi- resting metabolic rate. So, I, I understand sort of the fear of weight gain, but most people aren't going to gain very much weight by increasing their carbohydrate and protein intake to the recommended levels.
1: Okay, great, great advice there, and uh, that that I think clears things up and kind of helps a lot with um, you know which which is which is more important to you um, having a few extra calories, but maybe you know lose. Uh, that vanity weight of where you want to just lose a few more pounds, but then you'd rather be a few pounds heavier, but and then be able to perform and not risk overtraining and thing. I think that's a very helpful way to sum yeah. it up there. Um, so that's all the questions I have for the day. Um, are there any uh, particular products you would want to recommend to any listeners for their nutritional intakes? And if not, uh, then what's the best way people can kind of keep in touch with what you're up to in the future with studies?
0: Um, they can always go to the, um, nutrition and exercise physiology department's website Mm -hmm. at the university of Missouri.
1: Okay. I will put a link to that on the show notes as well.
0: And they can contact me by email if they want to. Mm -hmm. So those are probably the two best ways to keep up with what we're doing.
1: Okay. Okay. All right, I will put a link to both of those at runnersconnect.net forward slash RC77. So Pam, I want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you uh, giving us part of your day to uh, inform people about this. This has been really insightful and I'm sure people are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you so much for your time and uh, I look forward to seeing what the next study that you come up with is.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Well, was I right? That was really interesting, wasn't it? I finally have the answers I've wondered about for years. All those years of Googling and all I really needed to do was talk to Pam. I have some exciting news. Uh, You can actually now text me to get the latest news from Runners Connect by texting TINA, T-I-N-A, to 66866. I thought I'd make it nice and easy for you because I know often we're listening to podcasts while we're on the move and you don't really have time to type in a specific address. So if you text Tina, T-I-N-A to 66866, we will get you on our list. And please remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes. We have a new one that comes out every Wednesday, and if you subscribe, it makes it nice and easy. So thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to talking to you again soon.